Amen. Well, we've got a few people here that are typically not in our Sunday services. As all of our elementary students are joining us uh, this morning, as every time a uh, month has five Sundays in it, our fifth Sunday is Family Sunday. So if you're an elementary student, would you just raise your hand right now? Just raise it high. If you're in elementary, you raise your hand up high. Great job. Awesome. Guys, let me just, I want to just say something directly to each of you. Thank you for being here and welcome. And we're excited to be able to have you in here joining us uh, for the service today. And I want to ask you something specifically as we start, and especially as we get started with this text. What I want you to do, if you're in elementary, if you raise your hand, what I want you to do right now is shout as loud as you can. Right now, as loud as you can. Go. As loud as you can. If you're in elementary, go as loud as you can. Let me hear it. Let me hear it. That's, that's kind of loud, but I need to hear it a little bit louder. One, two, three. Okay, all right. That was, that was pretty good. Let me ask you another question. You're welcome, parents. Um, if you're in elementary, would you clap as loud as you can? Let's try that. That was good. That was really good. If you want lessons on clapping, let me tell you, Garrett Wood is one of the best clappers I've ever met. It's truly extraordinary. You talk about spiritual gifts. I've never met any. Do you hear that? It's extraordinary. Well, the reason why I asked you to shout and to clap is not simply just to do it to annoy your parents. Well, that was honestly the wicked part of me kind of wanted that. But also, I wanted us, as we started shouting and clapping, as we look at our psalm this morning in Psalm 98, you'll notice there's a lot of shouting and clapping that happens. And it's interesting as we read, I want to read it right now, I want you to try to recognize who it is that's shouting and clapping. So Psalm 98, as we look there, is going to be our text this morning. Psalm 98 says this, Sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders. His right hand and holy arm have won him victory. The Lord has made his victory known. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen God's victory. So let the whole earth shout to the Lord. Be jubilant, shout for joy, and sing. Sing to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and melodious song, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout triumphantly in the presence of the Lord our King. Let the sea and all that fills the sea, the world and those who live in the world resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Isn't that an interesting image? Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. What we see in this psalm is not just God's salvation, but we see his people responding with singing. But notice there in, towards the end, we see also creation responding. We see rivers clapping and mountains shouting. And our question really I want to try to answer this morning is what makes a river clap? What would make a river do something like that? The things that each of you this morning shouted and clapped, you actually are doing what creation will one day do. I want to hope to ask the question and answer is what makes them do that? As we begin, I want to uh, make note of one of my favorite hymn writers in history. is a guy named Isaac Watts. Isaac lived in the 16 and 1700s. Uh, and during his time in uh, church, the regular practice was to sing the psalms. So they would literally take like Psalm 98 and just set it to music. 
They would just sing it. That was their understanding of what worship was to be. The singing in the church was to be psalms. Now, Isaac, though, uh, had a bit of an issue in wanting to sing specifically Christian songs. Because if someone who was Jewish walked into their church, they could sing every word and mean it. Again, they'd have a different understanding of how it was fulfilled. But Isaac wanted to write, church, uh, write songs that only the church could sing, that only Christians were, would sing. And he wanted to write songs based on the songs but make them distinctly Christian. That's why at our church you'll notice often we'll sing songs like the first one we sang this morning, Praise the Lord. You see in the parentheses in your bulletin it says Psalm 150. That song is based out of Psalm 150 but also helps us see how that psalm points us to and is fulfilled in Christ. It's a distinctly Christian way of seeing the psalms. And this is what Isaac Watts wanted to do. So in 1719, he published his collection of Christian psalms. He went through every single psalm and rewrote it with a Christian perspective. And he entitled it, The Psalms of David, Imitated in the Language of the New Testament and Applied to the Christian State and Worship. Just rolls right off the tongue. (laughs) But what a gift to be able to now view the psalm through a New Testament lens. Friends, honestly, that perspective is exactly what we've been attempting to do through this summer series, the Summer in the Psalms, is every Sunday we've looked at a different psalm and not simply tried to understand its historical context, but see the way in which that is pointing to and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we close our series this week as we look at Psalm 98 and the salvation that God has accomplished and what the proper response should be. So if you're taking notes, we'll have three different points to these nine verses Uh, First, we'll look at the salvation of God. Second, we'll look at the response of his people. And third, we'll look at the response of his creation. That's kind of our mile markers along the way. Three points, we'll look at the salvation of God. Verses one through three, the response of his people, verses four through six, and the response of his creation, verses seven through nine. So first, the salvation of God in the first three verses. Really, this psalm is a command in one sentence, and the rest of the psalm is telling you why the command is there. The command is right there in the very first uh, sentence of verse 1. Look at verse 1. Sing a new song to the Lord. This is the command. The psalmist is writing to the people of Israel and now also to Christ's church, sing a new song to the Lord. This is salvation recognized here. This is the recognition of God's salvation creates in us this song. And not just a song, but a new song. There's this command to sing. We'll talk about this later on. But a Christian people are a singing people. One of the distinct things about the Christian faith is that we are a singing faith. The command is to sing. The substance of that command is to sing what? Not just to sing a song, but to sing a new song. It's not just to sing a song that you remembered or that you had written uh, decades ago, to sing a new song today, to, to see and recognize what God is doing today in your life and to write a song off of that. So this isn't telling everyone you have to be a songwriter. Um, this is a metaphor. It's poetic. What it's saying is there should be some recognition of praise in our life, a new recognition of praise today for what God is doing today rather than relying on his past mercies, rather than relying on what he did last year or 10 years ago, or when he saved me, however long ago that might be. But friends, the command is to write a new song for the new mercies for the new day. And some of you are trying to face today's problems with yesterday's mercies. As part of the difficulty you're finding is you're trying to rely on storing up God's grace and mercy in your life and not seeing who he is today, the new angle and facet of his love today. 
we are trying to store it up like the Israelites in the wilderness, storing up manna to live on it, this bread that God had provided. But it rotted every day. They needed to go and collect the bread that God had for them daily. And friends, it's no different for us. The Christian life is a day-by-day life. It's not a Sunday-by-Sunday life. It's not a month-by-month life or a year-by-year life. It is day-by-day. And because we discover his new mercies every day, we're meant to sing new songs every day. And so we are to sing a new song, and then we see the recipient, to the Lord. He is the focus of our praise. He's the focus of our song. We sing to him. Why? Because we recognize his salvation. And this is then where the songwriter, the psalmist continues to say why we should sing this song. Look at that next word there. For. Sing a new song to the Lord for. Because. Here's the command. Why should we do it? He's about to list out the reasons. So we see salvation recognized there, but now we see salvation accomplished in the second half of verse 1. And 1B. We see that we are to sing a new song because God has performed wonders. Because his right hand and holy arm have won him victory. The psalmist here is no doubt thinking about all the ways that God has provided, cared for, and delivered and saved his people in Israel. Whether it's from Egypt or after exile from Babylon. But no doubt the Holy Spirit inspiring this psalmist is also considering the victory that God wins through Jesus Christ. And ultimately back out of the exile of this earth and into the promised land of heaven. This is a overarching victory of the wonders that God has performed to save his people. And so we should sing and recognize uh, his mercy because he has accomplished it. He has performed wonders and his right hand and holy arm have won him victory. This is really, for us as we look at this, the victory that God has won through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That every single one of us with out distinction, have all sinned against God. There's no scale of sinability that like, oh, this sin like separates you from God more. Every single sin is an act of cosmic and holy rebellion and treason against a holy God. And it creates for us this separation between God and man. God is holy and we are not. We've all fallen short. There's now this gap between us and him and there's nothing we can do to get back to him. And what religion paints is this, world religions paint this picture then of God on top of this mountain, all of us at the bottom, and religion is the path that we have to climb the mountain to get back on top. But Christianity is distinctly different from every world religion in that sense. Because what we know is there's nothing we can do to get back to God, so what we see in Jesus is God then comes down to us. And he was born of a virgin, He lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. And then on the cross, he died a substitutionary death, taking on our sin, receiving our punishment, and giving us then his righteousness, as Josh said in his testimony. This is the offer of Jesus, his perfect life, his righteousness then counted to us. So that all those who believe in Jesus, when God looks at them, he doesn't see the sum of your past mistakes. He doesn't see the overarching um, uh, amount of your shame and guilt. He sees all of that placed on Jesus and dealt with on the cross. And so when he looks at you, he sees the perfect life of Christ. And you are fully accepted, totally adopted, not by anything that you have done, but for what Christ has done in your place. And you don't have to do anything to earn it. 
You don't have to show, you don't have to improve, you don't have to improve anything, you don't have to impress him. You just believe, you trust in Jesus, and that life and that righteousness is given to you. We do have to respond to it. And we see Jesus then on the cross and through the empty tomb defeating our enemy and truly his right hand and his holy arm winning the victory. And that victory is then counted to all those who would follow and trust him. So we sing a new song to Jesus because he has won the victory. He has overcome the grave. He has defeated sin and he did it. Do you see that in verse one? That God in his hand and his arm have won the victory. Who's helping him in verse one? Nobody. And friends, Jesus, whenever he came, he did not need help to be able to accomplish salvation. And he did not come to make salvation possible. He actually accomplished it. And you notice that Jesus on the cross in his dying breath doesn't say, okay, I've done my part and now it's up to you to finish the rest. Good luck. What's the dying words of Jesus? It is finished. And friends, when he said that, he meant it. He accomplished that salvation. His right hand and holy arm have won him victory. He alone accomplished it. Charles Spurgeon, a, a Baptist pastor in uh, Great Britain in the 1800s, put it this way. He said, not by the aid of others, but by his own unweaponed hand, his marvelous conquests have been made. That God here in verse 1 just has his hand, no weapon in it. It's an unweaponed hand that then wins this victory. And he alone has won the victory, and he is the author of our faith. And friends, there is no co-author in the story of redemption. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we see salvation accomplished. Then in verse 2, we see that salvation is revealed. God then makes that victory known. The Lord has made his victory known. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And so he has, through this revelation, through this book, made his salvation known. We wouldn't know about it if he didn't tell us. We wouldn't know who God is specifically if he didn't tell us. I can conjure up things about celebrities that I may go, oh, I feel like I know John Mayer really well. I've seen him in concert twice. So like, we're bros, me and John. I know how he plays the guitar and slow dancing in a burning room. I, I know the ins and outs of his personality. But the reality is, is that I just know him from afar. I know about John Mayer. I wouldn't know him unless he came to me and began to tell me what he's like. No matter how much I watched him from afar, the only way for me to get to know him truly is he revealed himself to us. Friends, it's the same with the Lord. And it can be dangerous because I think a lot of us may be stuck in a situation where we know a lot about God. Maybe we know him from afar. Maybe we know things about him. But friends, he has revealed himself to us and he's revealed his salvation. And the only way we know anything about him is because he's told us. And so one very practical thing is for us just to realize that, acknowledge it, and just thank him every now and then for revealing himself. That our God is a God who speaks. He didn't remain silent, leaving us to try to guess what he's like. He's told us what he's like. He's revealed himself. And he makes that victory known. Not only is that salvation revealed, but we also see his salvation isn't explained in verse 3. Why would God do this? He tells us in verse 3. Because he has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Why would God go to the extent that he went to in the Old Testament and the links that he went to on the cross? God dying in your place. Why would he do that? 
How can we explain salvation? Well, friends, it's here. It's because he's remembered his love and his faithfulness. The salvation of God is motivated by the love of God. His saving act is motivated by his loving heart. We see this in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What drove God to send his son that he so loved you? I love that word, so, that there, in our English translation, there, he so loved. He didn't just love, he so loved you. God loves you. Friends, that's a message that often gets thrown around. It can sometimes feel trivialized. But if we pause and realize the depth of that statement, we can never wrap our minds around it. God loves you. I think about it this way. What do you love? One of the things that pop up in your mind, what you love. I, listen, in the English, again, we don't, we don't do a good job because love means like a million things. So you may be like, oh, I love tacos. Like, okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Different kind of love, a deep kind of love. What do you love? And we begin to then perhaps see a glimpse of then God's love to us, that we see God's love is not situational. It's not based on his preferences. His love, while like ours, is totally different than ours. God's love is unchanging, never wavering depending on how we act. God's love is immovable, unable to be overthrown by any opposition. God's love is unconditional, founded in himself and not conditioned on our impressiveness or our obedience. God's love is eternal, set on us before the foundation of the world, before we did anything for him. God's love is effective, producing in his children a likeness to their father. God's love is faithful, even in the moments when we are faithless. God's love is unending, unable to be fully understood and comprehended. For all of eternity, we will never get to the bottom of God's love for us. God's love is global, bringing the nations to himself. God's love is personal, knowing every name and caring for every individual concern in your life. And God's love is realistic. It's loving today's version of you. Not some future version of yourself or some idealized version of yourself. God loves you today as you're in this seat. That's just a glimpse of his love for you. And that love motivated him to send his son to die in your place and save you. God loves you. So what should our response be? How should we respond to that kind of love, to that kind of salvation? Well, the psalmist tells us here, we should sing. This is what we see second, the response of his people in verses four through six. So at the end of seeing this salvation that God has accomplished, what's the response? Well, let the whole earth then shout to the Lord. All the nations shout to the Lord. Be jubilant, shout for joy, and sing. And not just sing. Again, do you hear the words the psalmist is using? Shout. Be jubilant. Because you know what jubilant means. Here's the definition of jubilant. Feeling or expressing great happiness and triumph. Shout for joy. Sing with instruments, lyre, melodious song, trumpets, ram's horn. So I saw a bass up here, a keyboard. If anybody plays the shofar, we're taking applications on our music team. It's commanded here, the ram's horn, the shofar, to sing. Anybody's really good on the lyre, trumpets. We've got, listen, I'm just trying to obey the Bible. That's all I'm trying to do. Shout triumphantly. These are the commands and the response to God's grace and his love to us. This kind of overabundance and overflowing of joy 
and victory and triumph and happiness. That's what our singing should feel like. Friends, does that describe your singing? Does that res- describe your response? And maybe you, you hear that and you're like, listen, I, I, I get it. I'm just, singing isn't really my thing. I'm not really emotional. It's not me. I'm not an emotional guy. Singing's not my thing. I, I do other stuff. Right? You, I've heard the stories of, 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 for whatever reason, particularly men that will wait until the music's done to come in for the sermon. They're just like, oh, singing's not my thing. I don't really do like the emotion, like oh, singing. That's not, I don't have a good voice. Blah, blah, blah. Yada, yada, yada. I don't get excitable. And I hear that. And I just go, that is just so much garbage. That's not true. I've seen on Saturdays, whenever otherwise reserved men just lose their minds watching a bunch of 18-year-olds play football. I've seen emotion come out. I've seen the response whenever you're shouting for joy when you witness your team's victory. I'm from Louisiana. I understand the depth that college football reaches in the souls of men. I've seen it. So don't tell me you don't worship, you don't get excited. Friends, how much more, though, should our response be as the people of God when we witness and celebrate and remember and respond to the victory of God? As we see what Christ has done for us, it should engage us, not just intellectually, but also emotionally. And sure, this is going to look different for every person. God's wired every person differently. I'm not saying everyone's going to be the exact same. What I am saying is you can't lean on your personality to remove part of your worship to God that he has commanded from you. It's not simply an intellectual expression, but our worship should be emotional and physical as well. It's all-encompassing for who we are as a human being. It's our whole selves, our mind, our hearts, and our bodies engaged in response to what God has accomplished for us. And so we shout, not just physically, but also with jubilance, with joy, finding any instrument we can find to shout triumphantly. That should mark our singing. We should be intellectually engaged, emotionally stirred, and physically expressive. And however you're comfortable in that, again, everybody's going to be different, but you cannot get away from the whole human expression of worship throughout the scriptures. And so if you're here and and you find yourself more physically expressive in worship, just hear from me as the pastor. Please express that way. Raise your hands, move, whatever it is you do. You know, we're we're getting there. You know, we've got some people swaying, right? It's there. Some people, you know, during the sermon, maybe there'll be a point that lands on your heart, and we may not be like at the amen or keep going yet, but you'll get a good mmm every now and then. <laughs> but let me just encourage you, draw that out, even in this moment. This is not just people listening to one person's gift. This is worship together. It's an exchange. And so for you to speak to me as we then continue in this uh, moment, in this preaching event, and then into our singing to feel the freedom to physically respond and engage and express in worship. Don't feel like you have to hold that back. Don't feel like you have to pull back in your worship of God as you look around. And then also don't feel like you have to match someone else, right? We do really good at then casting like these kind of legalistic expectations and standards in the church. And so I've been at a place before where the worship leader commanded everyone to raise their hands. And I can just see that some people are like, oh, I just feel uncomfortable right now. And I understand that. If physical expression in worship distracts you from worshiping God, then don't do it. Right? There is no standard of what that is. But I just want to encourage us in that expression. I want to make sure that people aren't pulling back. Because we don't want to be inauthentic. 
I've seen this before. Goodness, I was at a church before where they instructed their worship leaders on the stage at what angle to hold their hands in the air as they sang. And I'm just like, what does that have to do with anything? So like, boy, the Holy Spirit, when, when your hands get at 30 degrees, then he really starts going. 90 degrees, a little weird, maybe some sweat stains, get it at 30, cover it up, and then the people can feel like some engagement, whatever it might be. That's what we want. 30 degrees, arm raise, that's what we want from the stage. Friends, we, do, we don't want to be anywhere near that stuff. Uh, but we do want to authentically respond to God's salvation with our whole selves, with our minds, with our hearts, and with our bodies. We want to make sure that what's leading the way is not our emotion, but it's the truth. So we don't want to, we, we've seen emotion manipulated, right? If you've been in church, you've seen this. But our response should not be then to get away from emotion. But we want to make sure that our hearts are led by the truth of God, by his word. By, you notice here, the response to salvation in our worship comes in response to the revealed work of what God has done, the truth of his salvation. That then should stir our hearts. So we should be intellectually engaged, emotionally stirred, and physically Expressive. That's, yeah, there that is. I could keep going, but we need to move on. On to the third point. That's the response of his people to that salvation. But what is the response of his creation? The response of his creation, verses seven through nine. Because notice, now these people in the presence of the Lord our King, here the psalmist invites another group to praise in verse seven. He now says, let the sea and all that fills it. So all the water and everything that's swimming through the water, that get, they get an invitation. And the world, and everything that lives in it. Every creature, every animal, everything in the world. Also invited. Also let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. So the other invitation is not just his people, but his creation. Everything in the world invited to Praise God, all the water and everything that lives in it, all the land and everything that lives on it, to resound. You see that in verse 7? To resound. That word means to fill a place with sound. And so the psalmist is saying that all the trees, all the mountains, the, the great mountains of Florida, the peak of Sugarloaf Mountain just up the road, all of it shouting the glory of God. Every ocean, every sunset, Every new image from the telescope, and I'm just not going to say anything else about it because I seem to always get something wrong about it. So just the telescope is getting new pictures, and it's awesome. And those images are revealing the glory of God. There it is. All of creation is resounding and filling the entire world with the praise and glory of God. That's why when you walk out and you see the sky at night, if you ever go up north and you see the northern lights, if you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, as we look at these images of deep space, there's something in our souls that gets stirred, whether you're Christian or not. We then feel that we're engaging with something greater. God designed it. He hardwired it that way. He reveals something of who he is in those things. Now, again, specifically we don't know except through his word. But there in his, in his creation, it is lifting up and shouting his glory. That's why I love one of the songs we sing here is a hymn called This Is My Father's World. We sang it last week. And just listen to this stanza. This is so good. so true. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. 
Friends, that's the truth of how God has written into his creation this truth, that it is singing to him and praising him. Again, we saw, like we did at the very beginning, the rivers here are clapping their hands. The mountains are shouting together for joy. And why? Why is there clapping? Why is there shouting? Why is creation singing? Well, look at verse 9. They're clapping, they're shouting together before the Lord. Why? Because he is coming. For he is coming. And when he comes, he will come to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. So the psalmist is getting us to see here that creation is looking with an eye to when God will come to earth. And when he comes, he will judge the earth and he will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. And that return of God to this world is causing something in creation to rise up with praise. Because the king is coming. Because the Messiah will arrive. But here's our question. As we see in the Bible, there are two times which Jesus comes to earth. Two times which God comes to earth. Two different arrivals. Two different comings. Two different advents. The word advent in Latin, adventus, means coming or arrival. Jesus comes twice. So which one does this psalm have in mind? Creation is singing and praising God for his coming. Which coming do we have in mind here? Well, we see in 9, in verse 9, it's the one where he will come to judge the earth. When the king comes to judge the earth. When is that? Well, Jesus is remarkably clear. In John 12, 47, this is what Jesus says. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Okay, so his first coming, Jesus didn't come to judge, can save. But then after Jesus dies, buried, raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, we then see that he's going to one day come again. And here's then how the New Testament author Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, describes it in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1. Tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. So Paul here, after the ascension, Jesus is in heaven, is saying, hey, Jesus is going to return, and when he does, what's he going to do? He is going to judge the living and the dead. And when you read Revelation, you see then this rider on a white horse coming to do just that, to judge the nations. That all those then who still stand in their sin will have to stand before that man, that God, and they will have to give an account for their life. Every single person will stand before Christ our great judge, and he will judge the living and the dead. And we will either try to muster up in our life the best that we have and say, Jesus, was this enough? Is this enough to be saved? But again, what we see is that every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing we can do to buy his salvation. It's like trying to, it's like missing the first question on a test and then trying to make a hundred after that. We can't do it. So we either stand in our sin before him and receive a just punishment for our rebellion against him, or we will stand in Christ's righteousness. We'll say on that day, like the hymn writer says, that there is nothing in my hands I bring. It's simply to the cross I cling. And I am here because of another, because of what he has done for me. And this is what we see Jesus in that second coming, coming to judge the living and the dead. So his first coming, he came to save the world, to taste our sadness, and to offer a sacrifice for sin. But his second coming, he will come to judge the world, end our sadness, and usher in his perfect and eternal kingdom. First coming, salvation inaugurated. Second coming, salvation completed. 
First coming, incarnation. Second coming, culmination. And so what we see in this psalm is that this psalmist has an eye not to the first coming of Jesus, but to his second coming, to his return, when he will come to judge the earth and judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. So all of God's people around the whole earth joins then with all of creation and sings this praise to God when Jesus returns. Psalm 98 is giving us a trailer, a preview of what the very last scene will look like when Jesus returns. And so it makes sense then why creation is singing with the psalm that's referring to the second coming of our King Jesus. I think about it this way. How many of you have seen the Disney animated classic Beauty and the Beast? I don't mean the new one. I mean the OG, like the real 1994 Beauty and the Beast. Okay. Most, or the rest of you are lying. We can, we can pray for forgiveness next week. No, it's a, it was a landmark movie for a number of reasons, one of which it was the first animated feature to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Feature Film. This is, is that good. It's a great, great film. And in it, if you don't know it, let me just briefly describe the plot. At the very beginning, there's a prince in a castle. He's got a bunch of servants. An old woman comes and asks for help because there's a storm, and he turns her away because of her haggardly appearance. And then all of a sudden, she turns into this, like, uh, fair enchantress. I was like, hey, you were mean to me. Uh, you're getting a curse and everybody in your castle. You're now turning into a beast. Everybody else, he's going to be uh, a clock. Uh, she's going to be a dresser. She, you're going to be a teapot and a little cup. And so everybody then receives this curse. Prince turns into a beast. All the servants turn into these inanimate objects, Lumiere, Cogsworth, so on and so forth. This is Potts, Chip. And what we see then is if you try to place yourself as one of the servants at the beginning of that story, all of a sudden, let's say you're just dusting the cabinets one day. You feel something strange, and you look at your hands, and all of a sudden you've got candlesticks at hands. Well, what's, what in the world's going on? You come to find out is because your master, the prince of the castle, was just a jerk to this old woman, turned out to be a fair enchantress, and then you're like, well, I didn't do anything. Why am I cursed? Because of what he's done. And everyone in the castle was cursed, though they didn't do anything. It was because of another's act that they were cursed. And so all throughout the movie, each of these objects are longing to be human again. They're longing to be restored. They want to get back to how they originally were. There's this longing for restoration. And then ultimately, Belle falls in love with the beast, right? That's how you break the spell. You must love another and have them love you in return. That's what happens with Belle at the very end. Spoiler alert. But again, if you had not seen it by now, it's just, there's no hope for you. Like, I just, I can't do anything for you. Belle falls in love with the beast. The curse is lifted. The beast turns back into the prince. All the objects turn into humans again, and they all lived happily ever after. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because, friends, creation is almost exactly like that. Okay, apart from the fair enchantress bit, um, apart from that, here's what we see. Creation was cursed, though it didn't do anything. In Genesis 3, in the fall with Adam and Eve, when they rebel against God, there's in this curse that falls on the serpent, Adam and Eve. But we also hear this in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. The ground is cursed because of you, Adam. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. The ground and all of creation is cursed. Not because of anything that they did, but because of the act of another. And now do you see thorns and thistles produced as a mark of that curse that wasn't there before. So this is part of where we understand, just from a worldview perspective, why we see the brokenness of creation. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, wildfires. 
This is a result of that curse is creation then is broken. And Paul, as the Fohos read earlier in Romans 8, described it this way, that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and into the glorious freedom of God's children. That there is this groaning in creation because it was cursed because of nothing that it did. Not only is it cursed, though it didn't do anything, it's also longing for restoration. Romans 8.22 says the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now, longing to be restored back to its original state, to be back returned to before there was any curse. And we also see then creation celebrates when that curse is lifted. At the end of Beauty and the Beast, there's a huge celebration as that curse is lifted from the castle. And friends, Psalm 98 is a glimpse into that celebration. As we see all of God's children and all of God's creation joining together in this everlasting chorus to sing of when that curse will be lifted once and for all. Because that curse was placed on another. I find it no just small detail that the gospel writers point that when Jesus was crucified, what did they place on his head? A crown of what? Thorns and thistles. I think that's not only a mockery of him being king, I think it's also by the Holy Spirit's inspiration to show us the way in which the curse itself of what we see in Genesis 3, 17 and 18 was then taken and placed on the head of Christ. And he on the cross took on the curse. He became a curse for us, Paul says in Galatians. As the Old Testament says, curses everything that hangs on a tree. That Jesus becomes cursed so that we might receive God's blessing. He receives our punishment so that we could receive his life. He becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we see this exchange that happens. God dies in our place and he then offers us his life. This is the gospel. And what we see ultimately when Jesus returns is the full uh, uh, overcoming and completion and defeat of that curse once and for all. When he returns again. So Psalm 98 has an eye on that day when the king will return and that curse will be lifted. And all his people and all his creation will sing with that praise as God has finally accomplished once and for all his salvation for his people. And we should also be marked and shaped by that day. The return of Jesus should change how we live today. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. He said, I live with two days on my calendar, this day and that day. He said, I want to live with this day in front of me, not get too caught up in the future, but I do want to have an eye on that day when he returns, knowing the truth of what will happen when he comes and how that will shape my life today. And part of when he comes we also see he then brings with him his perfect kingdom. He brings heaven itself. As there's a new heavens and a new earth that we then live forever. God's people live forever with him face to face. And all of sin and all the curse of the sin is removed once and for all. That should shape how we live. That coming of Jesus and that view of heaven. And so that's why we're doing a hymn sing tonight. Shameless plug for the hymn sing. We're going to be singing all songs about heaven to help us keep our eyes on that day. And so come tonight as we sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs in one another to try to get the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. So that's tonight at five. Hope to see you there. It's going to be awesome. As we close, right, with an eye on the second coming of Jesus and the restoration of all things, it makes sense then, as I mentioned, Isaac Watts writing a, psalm on each of, writing a song on each of the psalms. 
putting a lens of the New Testament on them. It makes sense that he entitled his song, based on Psalm 98, uh, The Messiah's Coming in His Kingdom. That makes sense why that was the title of the song. And I think that that song may be the most well-known hymn in the world. And if you've known me for long, you, you know me why that's the case. But maybe you're here and you're going, Caleb, I've never heard that before. The Messiah's coming in his kingdom? I hadn't heard that. Most well-known hymn? You're ridiculous. I'm not coming back here. You're crazy. Well, maybe you're saying that. But perhaps you know how it's more commonly referred to today as joy to the world. And you go, no, 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 Caleb, again, you're crazy. That's a Christmas song. We're not talking about the second coming. And I'll, I'll just say, if you look at the lyrics, you'll see it has nothing to do with Christmas. It's all about this. Isaac Watts read Psalm 98, looked at it through the New Testament lens, and wrote Joy to the World of how we will respond when Christ our King comes again. Not his first arrival, but his second. Just listen to the lyrics again now with that in mind. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while the fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains all repeat the sounding joy. And the third stanza, my favorite, the one we often don't sing at Christmas. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. For he's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And Isaac Watts had his eye on the return of Jesus, knowing that when he comes, sins and sorrows will no longer grow. Thorns and thistles will no longer infest the ground. Because when Jesus comes, he comes to make the blessing of his salvation and all the extent of his love and grace and mercy flow. And what's the extent of that blessing? What's the reach of his grace? Friends, the reach is as far as the curse is found that he will come and remove the curse once and for all. And every remnant and residue of that curse will then be removed forever when our king comes again. And he will make everything new. And death will be no more. Tears, pain, sorrow, and crying will be no more. Why? Because our king is coming. And we sit in expectation today for that joyous celebration that will come on that day. Watts wasn't writing about the first coming of Jesus. He was writing about his second coming, when the king will return, remove the curse in its entirety, as all of heaven and all of nature repeat the sounding joy that the Lord has finally come, and at last there can be joy to the world. Friends, may we join creation and keep an eye on that day, longing for the return of our king and on that day when he returns, knowing that his people will be caught up in the praise with all his creation. And we won't find the right words to thank him, but we will have eternity to try. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for the hope that we have in our coming king. Lord, would you help us to live our lives in light of that day? And God, would you help us live our lives as marked by praise, praise for your salvation? Lord, longing for that day whenever we will see Jesus face to face and we will know him and we will see him and walk with him as a friend walks next to his other friend. Lord, we love you and we thank you again for the grace you've shown us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.